I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. Come along with us on an adventure in the book of Judges. Welcome Welcome to to the the club, club, the Bible book club. When last we left you on the Bible Book Club, we were in the story of Judges, and it began with a gold standard. Othniel, whom we first met back in Joshua, he was a man who won the competition for Caleb's daughter by defeating the Canaanites. He was the judge, and he was from the tribe of Judah. Then we learned the story of the second judge, Ehud, a comedy, a little bit of a comedy. And Ehud was left-handed or perhaps handicapped. We're not sure which. God used his unique disability for a victory in the assassination of Eglon, the king of Moab. The last story we read was just two lines given to Shamgar, a minor judge. He was not a warrior, but killed 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. (laughs) Vicious. Vicious. Okay, here's the setup for chapter four. This is the story of three heroes, Deborah, Barak, and Jael, but only one of them is a judge. Now, Deborah and Jael are women who in their own way are waging war on the Canaanites. Deborah is the third major judge and the fourth in the list of all the judges. Jael provides an unexpected twist at the end of the story. Both are women with unquestionable conviction about God. So we have Deborah and Jael, and then we have this pickle in the middle. The man in the middle, Brock, is the pickle in this story. His attitude is a little salty and a little sour. And because of it, he received a consequence that despite his best efforts cannot be avoided. All right, let's talk about Deborah, this third major judge. Like Ehud, she has a handicap. Deborah was a woman in an age when leadership was usually reserved for men. A handicap is defined as a circumstance that makes progress or success difficult. Being a woman in a male-dominated culture was definitely an impediment. However, handicaps can be useful. Are you calling her handicapped because she's a woman? In this case, yes, because a handicap is something that makes progress difficult. At that time period, it was a handicap to her, and you're going to find out why. A handicap often requires a person to work harder, which can develop grit and determination. Working with a handicap often requires creativity and resourcefulness, which can develop the ability to think outside the box and to see solutions that others miss. Ehud had the latter. He was creative and resourceful. Using his perceived handicap, he gained entrance to the king with a hidden weapon and single-handedly brought the king down. Deborah, we will learn, has a handicap that requires her to work harder because she does not hold the respect that a man would in her position. Are you tracking? I am. I was taking a little bit of offense to that, but I guess it's just the culture that they lived in then. And I do see your point. So I will give you the handicap. Especially because they're waging war at the time. Barack, a military leader, is going to resist her leadership. Think less of her decisions because of who she is. But Deborah does not give up. She has grit, determination, and the experience to have confidence in what she knows is right. Perceptions about what a person can and cannot do are handicaps most of us face. People are apt to choose a leader, a friend, a spouse, a school, a job, etc., 
based on an outward appearance or social status. This tendency to be influenced by looks or popularity is increasing as we spend more and more time scrolling through the media, studying others. We're becoming very discerning about what we think someone should look like or do. But God has a different view, for He can see into the heart. Stay with BBC because in just two seasons, we will discuss the story of the greatest king in the Old Testament, the man who was chosen because he had a heart for God. Listen to 1 Samuel 9. 1 Samuel 9, verse 6. When they entered, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is standing before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees, since man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Deborah was not chosen because she was a man or a warrior. Deborah was chosen to save Israel because she had wisdom and a heart for the Lord. Something to remember, girls, when we're spending lots of hours trying to get ready for something. <laughs> now, just for reference, when we just read that verse in First Samuel, we're jumping ahead a little bit to the story of Saul and David. This is the story of David, yes. And that was a reference to David and Saul, right? This one was specifically David. Um, when Samuel went in, he was the oldest son was brought forward. So he was told that one of Jesse's sons was would be the king. So Samuel walks in and he sees the oldest son who happened to be tall and fit. And he thinks, surely this is it. Nope, not him. And he goes through all the sons and he goes, well, where is he? And they go and get this kid, David. Um, and so Samuel's surprised, but... God looks at the heart and he knew what was inside this man. Yeah. And that's the story we're going to get to in first Samuel. That's what I said. Stay with us. First Samuel is coming soon. But back to Deborah. Back to Deborah. With the story of Deborah, we begin the third cycle of sin that begins with the phrase, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, we only get that phrase for the major judges, not the minor. Chapter Four. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Hadarshef Hegoyim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. All right. What did the Israelites do this time? It only says three words. They did evil. But what was and is today evil to the Lord? Well, here's John Piper's modern definition of evil that still applies to back then. He says, the core essence of evil is preferring anything more than God and loving anything not for God's sake. Evil is an act of preferring. Now, this is inherent in both the Old and New Testament. In fact, in Romans 1, Paul addresses this. Romans 1 verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind of birds, four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The Israelites did evil by breaking the first and second commandments to love and worship God and God only. 
So basically idolatry. Exactly. And it's something we we do today in the book of Judges. Evil was worshiping other gods, Ashereth and Baal and four-footed creatures and everything Paul mentioned, even in the New Testament. But this is also a warning to all of us. What do we love or prefer more than God? And how do you worship it? Money, our children, our work, our sports, our hobbies, the entertainment on our screens, our phone. I could go on and on and on and on. But what is it in your life that you might be putting above God? And how do you need to write that? Exactly. Whether under the old covenant of the law of Moses or the new covenant of the grace of Jesus Christ, if you prefer anything over God, it can be described as evil. It may not have been made for evil, but it can become evil. In this story, who oppressed the Israelites? So I'm trying to cover this in every single judge, like what they did, who who oppressed them. Well, in, in Deborah's time, Jabin, king of Canaan, and Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, were the ones oppressing the Israelites. Sisera was powerful. He had 900 chariots fitted with iron. Chariots at this time were tools of destruction from which soldiers would chase the enemy at a pace that they could not outrun and slaughter them from a position over them from which they could not defend themselves. And that's why in in the case of Pharaoh and in the case of this army, it was like struck terror if anyone had chariots. It says that the Canaanites cruelly oppressed the Israelites with these chariots for 20 years. But remember, Jabin and Sisera are rulers with an army that if Israel had obeyed God years ago, would not even be there in the promised land to oppress them because they did not totally enact the harem, the total annihilation of the Canaanites. They, um, you know, prospered and became a problem. Now, this is another warning to all of us. The consequences of disobedience are painful. And certainly we were in all the book of Judges, we're watching them suffer. So again, the Israelites cry to the Lord for help. And again, the Lord sends a judge. This is the story of Deborah, the wise woman. Verse four. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lipidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So what do we know about Deborah? Well, she is a prophet, which means she teaches and preaches the word of God. She is the wife of Lapidoth. And some commentaries suggests that she may be a widow at this time because we really don't get any more mention of him. Now, her name means honeybee, which perfectly describes this woman holding court with the ability to command hives of men, (laughs) armies of men. Her court was between Bethel and Ramah in the territory of Ephraim, but it is thought that she may have been from the tribe of Asher. So remember, we're trying to kind of associate one judge with each tribe. She was leading Israel, but not as a military leader yet. She was as the other judges were and are going to be. Deborah was leading Israel because of her wisdom and character. Unlike the other judges who didn't judge, Deborah actually did judge. She settled disputes serving as a judge as we know them today. Now, Deborah was an unusual woman chosen by God for a difficult time. And like so many of the other judges, she was chosen because I think God wants us to know that he can use anyone. 
Here is the scene in Deborah's story before we get into it. Deborah's serving God daily. She's holding court and solving problems when she gets a word from the Lord that it is time to put an end to King Jabin and his chariots led by Sisera. So she calls for Barak, the leader of the army in the north, because that's where they're all located right now, up in the north, which is why Judah's kind of left out of this story. Remember, Judah's way in the south. She tells Barak of God's command to call up the two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun. The, these are the closest tribes to Jabin and Sisera's headquarters. Verse six, she sent for Barak, son of Abinamam, from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went back with Barak to Kadesh. There, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. All right, let's talk about Barak, the reluctant rescuer. And let's try to go inside of his head. So what... What Heather just read, he's clearly reluctant, but why? He shouldn't have been surprised by this call because he lives in the area and he should be very invested because it's his people probably that are being persecuted. But he's in a bit of a pickle because this woman um, who's very revered by others and is a prophet, speaks for the Lord, is telling him what to do. So his response is is a bit of a conundrum to us because we don't know the tone of his response. Was he being salty or defiant? Like, yeah, right, that isn't happening. Was this response a defiant challenge to her, implying that she was crazy and she wouldn't fight these people? So why should he? Like, was he really thinking, I'm not going to win? He's being defiant to the Lord. Or was he just being sour or negative? Like, great, Deborah. It's so easy for you sitting safely under a palm tree to tell me what to do. In other words, he's reluctant, but he's going to do it, but not with an attitude that honors the Lord. Or third option, Was he being mushy or weak? Like, wait, what, Deborah? I'm not going unless you go. Possibly he's afraid and lacks faith that the Lord will give him victory, even though Deborah said he would. So he wants her with him as a prophet, as insurance that what she says will come true. There are lots of opinions about Barak's attitude here, but however you read it, we can all agree that Barak is reluctant. And that's a lack of faith, any way you look at it. And his attitude is a strong contrast to Othniel's and Ehud's, our first two judges. Well, Deborah hears him, the challenge or the weakness, we don't know, and she does not hesitate, demonstrating a conviction of faith that made her fearless. She would not send Barak where she would not go herself. Barak's lack of faith, however, will have consequences for him. Sisera, the leader of the Canaanite army, would be delivered into the hands of a woman. And of course, Barak assumes that woman is Deborah. Ouch. That would have been a gut punch to his macho military pride. I do wonder how Barak, the military strategist, 
thought Deborah was going to kill Sisera? Did he think she was going to suit up and fight with him? Was he furious with her for agreeing to go with him? Was he determined to find a way to keep her from getting to Sisera before he did? It wouldn't be easy. Deborah has a lot of nerve and God likes it. All right, new scene. Fast forward. Barack and Deborah have moved to the battle. They've joined forces and moved to the battle region near Kadesh, where some old friends of the Israelites, the Kenites, have taken up residence. Now, the Kenites are related by marriage to the Israelites and are very well connected. Moses' wife, Zipporah, was a Kenite. The Kenites were also just mentioned in Judges 1 because after hearing the Israelites had finally made it to the promised land, they went to live with the tribe of Judah. Good choice on their part. They are definitely social climbers. But the Kenites are a fickle nomadic bunch. And now it states that they are living near Kadesh. And being social climbers, they have betrayed their old friends, the Israelites, and made a new alliance with the Canaanites, of course, because the Canaanites have more power. And why their location in this story has any importance, we don't know yet, but we are about to find out. Verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanamanir Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinanam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harashath Haganim, the Kishon River, all his friends and his 900 chariots filled with iron. The Canaanite traders somehow found out that the Israelites had arrived and let Sisera know about it. The battle begins and ends quickly. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far far as Hasareth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. So much for having 900 chariots. Of iron. Exactly. Fitted with iron. Barak has now seen with his own eyes that nothing is too difficult for God. Filled with renewed faith, Barak pursues the Canaanites and executes complete harem. Not one Canaanite will survive as they flee to the southwest. Barak pursues the Canaanites all the way to Sisera's home in Harishoth Hagoyim. Now, one can imagine he is strategically searching for Sisera, driven by the desire to get Sisera and kill him before Deborah does, and therefore save himself from military humiliation. Barak has no idea that he is the pickle in the middle of two women, and that it is not Deborah that he should be concerned about. Because Sisera, unbeknownst to Barak, is fleeing in the opposite direction to the north, where the Kenites are camped, and we meet Jael, the fearless, faithful female foreigner. Verse 17, Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told 
told her, if someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up the tent peg and a hammer and went quickly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Who was Jael and what was she thinking? She killed a man with a tent peg. Now, setting up the tent was women's work in that day. So it was a handy tool, but super awkward. And why the head and not the heart? Did they not have knives back then? Well, I can barely kill one of those poisonous frogs in the backyard, so I won't kill my dog. Exactly. I I don't know if I could use a peg. This was a really violent act. Jael is a non-Israelite, a Kenite, distantly related to Israel through Moses, but currently aligned with the Canaanites. She's married to Heber and must have some standing, for she clearly knows Sisera. Now, how and why she devised the plan for this assassination is never explained. Some believe because of Sisera's reputation, which we're going to get to, trust me, explained more in chapter five, as an abusive man and because of the way Jael invited him into her tent, some people um, assume that he was very familiar with Jael and may have sexually assaulted her in the past. This theory justifies the violence of the assassination, because even if Jail were really strong, driving a peg through Cicero's head would have been an act motivated by premeditated animosity and a lot of adrenaline. But God could have also provided all that passion too. We just don't know. What we do know is that, like Ehud, in the last episode, Jail was creative, cunning, and a convincing actress. She totally disarmed the battle-weary Sisera with milk and honeyed words. And like Shamgar, she was not an Israelite and not a soldier and fearlessly improvised with a domestic weapon without any practice. Barak would not be the only military man whose military reputation was damaged. Sisera would be remembered as the mighty man killed by a woman with a household appliance. Verse 22. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed him. Jael was used by God because Barak was reluctant. God was true to the word spoken through Deborah that a woman would defeat Sisera. To make the prophecy even more remarkable, God chose an unknown woman without a real weapon who wasn't even an Israelite. The deed was done, a painful consequence for a military man to be sure. But was there an even greater humiliation, the pain of proof? Did Barak feel the proof of God's disappointment in him for how he responded to Deborah with a salty or sour attitude. All right, chapter five, the song of Deborah is going to give us a little bit more information on everything we missed in the story. This is not the first song we have read in the Bible. The first song is the song of Moses in Exodus 15, which fun fact will also be the last song in the Bible repeated in Revelations 15. In an age where there was no printing press or digital media, 
conquests of war were remembered through songs that could be told and sung over and over to children and neighboring nations in a boastful way. It was a way for news to travel and for history to be remembered. The Song of Deborah recounts the story, but its deeper purpose for the Israelites was to celebrate God's role in this victory. Chapter 5. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinom, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers, a among the people, praise the Lord, you who ride on white donkeys sitting on your saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of the villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Wake up, wake up, Deborah, wake up, wake up, break out in song, arise, Barak, take captive your captive son of Abinom. In this first section, Deborah and Barak stand together and praise the Lord, which redeems him, in my opinion, a little bit. And they tell the story of how God called a new leader, Deborah, and she is described as a mother of Israel, which will be an important description as a comparison to another mother in this song. Verse 13, the remnant of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Makir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear the commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you say among the sheep pens to hear the whistling of the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced fields. So in this section, the participants of the battle are listed. Six tribes fought. Ephraim, Benjamin, Makir, which is a tribe of Manasseh, Zebulun, Issachar, and Naphtali. Four nearby did not. Reuben, Gilead, which is from the tribe of Gad, Dan, and Asher. Now, Judah and Simeon are excluded probably due to distance their way in the south. Verse 19, kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thought 
thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds. Curse Meroz, said the angel of the Lord, curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. So here we get a little more detail about the battle than what we got in chapter four. The song tells us that from the heavens, the stars fought. In other words, God delivered a storm of epic proportions. The Kishon River flooded, rendering those 900 chariots useless. One can't help but remember the other waters that destroyed Pharaoh's chariots in a similar way when Israel crossed the Red Sea. It's very interesting that not one line is given to the Israel army's conquest. It's as if they never even engaged in warfare at all except to pursue the fleeing survivors. The entire victory was the Lord's doing, just as Deborah had said. And the angel of the Lord cursed Meroz, a village, because its people did not join the battle against Canaan. Verse 24, most blessed of woman be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk in a bowl fit for nobles. She brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice, she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answered her indeed. She keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man? Colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this as plunder? So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace for 40 years. There is so much irony and contrast in the odd inclusion of Cicero's mother that we could have a field day and park here for a whole nother episode. First, there is the comparison between Deborah, a mother in Israel leading in wisdom, and Sisera's mother delighting in evil. Then there is a comparison between Sisera's mother and Jael. One woman gave Sisera life, his mother, and the other woman took his life. Jael resides in a tent while Sisera's mother lives in a palace. Jael, in a very motherly act, brings him milk and plots his defeat while his real mother ponders his victory. Now, while Sisera lies dead in a tent, his mother and her attendants fantasize about the cause of his delay in returning. He was not only dividing the spoils in their imagination and discussion, he was partaking of the spoils. A woman or two for each man, it said. Now, the implications of these women's words are cruel because the literal translation is a womb, a pair of wombs for the head of each man. Sisera's mother and attendants are pleasing themselves with the thought of the Israeli women being sexually abused. The women were plunder of war, objects of gratification, 
and just another step in conquering Israel to the Canaanites. And this was a common thing that happened in warfare back in that day. So it wasn't unusual just to the Canaanites, but still the fact that these women are delighting in the abuse of other women was reprehensible. Cicero's mother's musings about the plundering and raping of innocent women reveal that Cicero has done this innumerable times in the past. She's just thinking he's being extra delayed this time. The fantasy was just that. It was a fantasy for Cicero had become the plunder himself. And he has become the plunder of a woman, just as he would have plundered the women if he lived. This was a just punishment for a man known even to his mother as one who abuses women. And because it is possible that Jael may have been one of those, one of his victims in the past, it made the means of his death even more appropriate. While Cicero's mother fantasizes about her despicable son, Jael risked her own life to deliver a people she is not even a part of. Her ability to see the right and wrong of a situation and to take action is remarkable. Her vision was clear and her conviction gave her superhuman strength. Timothy Keller summarized the whole story this way. He says this, The whole judge's cycle is framed around the actions of women. Deborah leads Israel under Sisera's oppression, seen most horribly in how he treats Israel's women. And Jael, another woman, is the means by which his reign of rape and terror is ended. After making the lives of many women hellish nightmares, it is two women who bring him down. There is great irony that the man who used women as objects is killed by a womanly object. And of course, he's referring to that tent peg because tent work was women's work. Killing Sisera was indeed a woman's work. The war against evil was not a spectator sport to jail, and nor should it be for us today. We must be involved, but no tent pegs, please. We must hear and obey the commands in his word, as it says in Ephesians 6 to us today. Ephesians 6 verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Realms. So whether male or female, you are a warrior for Christ and you have a calling. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome, welcome to, to the, the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.